everyone, and welcome to the Future of Health with Providence St. Joseph Health. I'm your host, Mary Renoff, bringing you the latest in healthcare trends and news each week. Today, I'm joined by MC Jenny, a clinical social worker and therapist with the First Step Resource Center at Providence St. Patrick Hospital in Montana. We're talking about the center's effort to reduce trauma and promote healing for victims of abuse. MC will also share how the center is changing the way we respond to children with problematic behaviors through an innovative new pilot project. Remember everyone, if you have questions for our experts, please share them with us on social media. We can be found on Twitter at PSJH and on Facebook under Providence St. Joseph Health. Use the hashtag Future of Health. That's hashtag Future of Health and we'll be on the lookout for your questions. The following program contains sexual content that may be triggering for some listeners. Anyone affected by sexual assault can find support on the National Sexual Assault Hotline by calling 1-800-656-HOPE. Again, that number is 1-800-656-4673. Before we get started, I also want to remind our listeners that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult a healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. So let's get started by welcoming our guest. Thank you for joining us, MC. Can you share a little bit about yourself? Hi, Mary. I'm glad to be here. Um, I work at St. Pat's Hospital here in Missoula, Montana, and I am currently the licensed clinical social worker there. And one of my um, activities in any given day is to put some attention on our program for problematic sexual behavior in children. Wow. That sounds very deep and intense. It can be. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the First Step Resource Center and how you came to work here. Okay. Um, First Step is part of Providence St. Patrick Hospital in Missoula, Montana. We're a nationally accredited children's advocacy center and adult sexual response program. We exist to improve the community response to child abuse and adult sexual violence and to support victims of abuse and their families in recovery. We provide confidential and compassionate medical evaluations, evidence collection, and forensic interviews. First Steps Mental Health and Family Advocacy staff uh, provide crisis intervention, referrals for follow-up care, counseling, and on-site therapy. And currently my role is the on-site therapist. Wow. What does a a forensic interview include? Uh Aha. A forensic interview means it's a legal um, legal interview with a child so for, in our case we have nurses on staff who are trained forensic interviewers so they are trained in child development they are trained in how when what questions to ask without being leading so it's a very um, it's a child-led interview in order for there not to be complication in the court system in the trial side yeah okay. yeah and I would assume then that how you approach the child changes greatly by their age, right? So they're trained for that. Not only by their age, their age is a starting point, mm-hmm. and then there's developmental. Mm-hmm. Where is that child developmentally, and how does that get determined? And part of the forensic interview susses that out. Uh, there are ways for um, it to become evident, you know, what a child is able, willing uh, to communicate. And you already mentioned the family, so you're not just really taking care of the child themselves, but the entire family. What does that mean for the family? What kind of services are those? Yeah, yeah. Well, for the first few years at First Step, I was actually the care coordinator, which meant uh, I was like the uh, control tower person. I didn't (laughs) fly the planes, but I made sure that uh, everyone was safe. 
And uh, what I did was I was the first contact with the family. So I'll just walk you through what that was like. Okay. We accept ref we accept referrals, self-referrals. So okay. centers are different across the United States. We happen to be a medical model. And um, so it is. it makes it so we're able to take calls from anyone in the community. We also get referrals from law enforcement. We get referrals from Child Protective Services. And uh, from within your own emergency room, I would think too, yes. Are you asking, do we have an emergency room? Well, do you get referrals from an emergency room? Oh, yes, yeah. yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. We do. Yes. Okay. So you, you said um, within the community. So if I was a concerned neighbor, I could call in and, and ask for a child to be seen. Is that what that means? Yes. And we, okay. we, we wouldn't start with uh, necessarily, I want this child, to, I think this child should be seen, but we would really have a discussion about what is the situation what are your concerns has there been a report have you reported to child and family services yet so really that care coordinator is uh, getting to know what the situation is and being there as you can imagine when people call they're in at some level of alarm sure, sure. and so part of that care coordinator position is to family advocate position is to help that person through through that and help them be as concrete as possible yet be able to also express emotionally what they're what they're going through sure so that the family is connected with us and an appointment is made and then uh, that family when they come in the door then they meet with that person again with the care coordinator again okay and is it always the same care coordinator? I mean, as often as possible, do you try to have as consistency? As often as possible. We have, we have had amazing uh, university master's degree practicum students in our office. Okay. So we do some training around that to help them uh, cover the advocacy. It's such families. a beautiful body of work, but yeah. it sounds like it would be very emotionally tough. Is that, is that something to consider, especially when you're talking about like residents or people in training? Is it something that you have to really have a lot of fortitude to do? You know, people ask me, how do I do this work? Mm -hmm. And I, what I have come up with was, I'm, I'm not sure how, but I can, so I do. You do? Yeah, yeah. And in fact, we, in our office, we, there's a lot of laughter. There's a lot of joy. And part of that is the way we um, cope with our fam sure. with the families we're working with. Um, but really, it it feels like a fortunate, really lucky position to be in. Yeah, it's yeah. definitely necessary, and it's neat. It's it's so important, and I, I love that people like you are called to do it because you're right. It is tough. We had this conversation recently at end of life care. How do you become a doctor who focuses basically on end of life care? So yeah. you go into it knowing, but going into a field where you're going to be working with children who are hurt or damaged that's mm -hmm. that's tough so thank there's you there's something so real and authentic about being able to be with someone at a point in their lives where they're so there's no pretense yeah. it's all there is is real and that's that's really a privilege yes it's amazing this the child advocacy center is that something that most communities have or is it rare that you actually have something that specializes in children for children hmm there are just over 800 children's advocacy centers across the United States right now. That doesn't sound like a lot, actually. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. 
And what does it take to become a child advocacy center? Is it having all of the right resources pulled together, the right training? It takes someone being connected and knowledgeable about the potential of having one, mm-hmm. and then finding a source for supporting that. And in our community, we're so lucky to have Providence St. Pat's support our program. And um, well, so so being part of St. Pat's, you're part of the the multidisciplinary team, right? The Missoula multidisciplinary team. What what are the purpose and benefits of that? Wow. That's a great, you know, to me, it's not even a question because it's so, it's so natural. We, um, we get to have a multidisciplinary team and you, you asked earlier how we become an accredited children's advocacy center. And part of that is that we, um, we meet standards that are under the umbrella are created and under the umbrella of the national children's Alliance. Okay. And we're actually in our accreditation year right now, so we're preparing for that. So we're looking at all of our processes. We're making sure that we're meeting all of the standards. There are amazing new mental health standards for us to meet, and we're making sure that we are doing that. And part of the the uh, problematic sexual behavior program that we're doing, that really feeds into that um, that standard. So constantly always optimizing, too, and getting better. Yeah, yeah. And the beautiful thing about the standards, too, is that part of that is we must collaborate with our agencies Mm -hmm. in our community. And it is a gift. These are agencies, one might think that these are agencies that may get siloed in terms of how they work, um, their style of work, the the way they're thinking, their principles, their values. And what happens is because we need to be a multidisciplinary team is we learn from each other, mm-hmm. we listen to each other, we hold each other accountable for the work, and all of that is so that we can all best serve the children and the families and the victims. Yeah. It's almost like you become a little family yourself. Yeah. yeah. You know, the value that we have put in place for ourselves is um, always assume goodwill. Like and that. that has saved us so many times when sure. the conflict, when things get heated, because it is, as you say, it is tough work. Sure. Um, we go back to that. We go back to when I, when I might fee- be questioning why another agency made a certain decision. Mm-hmm. I remember in their position, they made a decision based on things I probably don't know. They thought it was the best decision yeah. to be made. Yeah, for the so best it just encourages. Child, yeah. We're infused with communication, communication, communication. Yeah, wonderful. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk more about Providence's First Step Resource Center. Stay. 
are back with Future of Health. I'm your host, Mary Rudolph, with a reminder that anyone affected by sexual assault can find support on the National Sexual Assault Hotline by calling 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-HOPE. Now let's get back to our conversation with clinical social worker MC Jenny. MC Jenny, I understand that the First Step Resource Center is very innovative. Can you tell me about your latest pilot project and, and who the program serves? Well, You say the word innovative, and I just want to acknowledge that there are others across the country who have been, who've come before us doing a lot of research and creating evidence-based and informed treatment models um, based on child development. So it's not as if we are the first ones to do that, to look at this um, issue. What happened was, uh, well, I started at First Step about six years ago, and when I was in the role of working with the MDT, during interviews, I would, um, we would come across a child who we knew had problematic sexual behavior. And I would talk to the team, and I'm looking at law enforcement, and they're looking at me, and Child Protective Services is looking at us, and we're thinking, what are we gonna do about this? It just seems not appropriate to respond in a legal, criminal, mm-hmm. punitive kind of way. And Child Protective Services didn't have any mandates that said, okay, when there's a child in a family and there's problematic sexual behavior, this is what we do. So what was happening is no one agency was able to say, okay, we'll, we'll own this and we'll carry through. And so it didn't feel good. And at that time, we started thinking about and struggling with, what can we do instead? And so we started asking these questions. And then Lo and behold, information across the country started cropping up about other agencies struggling with the same issue. Right, right. Seems like it would be a common struggle, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of the 
the, the way that this program came to be, which is really focused on problematic sexual behavior. Is that correct? Yes, this particular okay. program, yeah. And can you explain to people listening, what is problematic sexual behavior? Hmm. Yes, I can. It is, um, first I want to start by saying there's a spectrum of behaviors, so it's not either or. Mm-hmm. And there is, um, there's natural and healthy sexual behavior in children. We're born as sexual beings. Sure. And there is concerning behavior, and there's problematic behavior, and then there's harmful behavior. So it's really important to look at that behavior, to be specific about what was the behavior exactly, but most importantly, not to say, okay, that's the behavior, and that's who that child is now, Mm -hmm. which currently is what our system response, and in the past, historically, our system response has been that. You guys, you guys say label the behavior, not the person, yeah. right? That's, and that's what you mean? Yes. To, okay. Exactly. Okay. That's what I mean. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. So a child with problematic sexual behavior is so much more than that incident sure. or the incidents that have happened. And that's really the, the crux of our program is that it looks at what else has happened to this child. Mm-hmm. This is most likely a symptom of other events in this child's life. So we're actually treating the symptom, a trauma symptom, the symptom of sexual behavior. We're not focusing on that. This doesn't seem like it should be that hard to comprehend because if you get a cancer diagnosis, cancer is not what defines you as a person. Mm-hmm. So if you have this, this behavior, it, sh- it isn't who you are. It's just something that happens, right? Mm-hmm. Huh. Except mm-hmm. in our culture, we say the word sex, we say the word sexual, we, we hear the word sexualization. And it's easy to get alarmed by that. Sure. It's a taboo topic. You know, it's, it's a, we see it everywhere, yet it's hard to talk about it at the everywhere. same time. Right. Yeah. So it brings an added level of, um, of disturbance. So then stigma reduction has to be part of what you work on as well, which is, right, like this is, this is not, a, it's not that it only happens to one in five million people, right? Mm-hmm. This, this is something that many parents are going to deal with over, mm-hmm. over the lifetime. So mm-hmm. it is very common. And in fact, in 2018, there were upward of 22,000 children under the age of 13 who were identified as, quote, alleged offenders, and unquote, children who have sexually harmed another child. So what that brings up is the language can dismiss the notion that children can learn and be taught and evolve when well guided through through their life experiences and an experience of sexual behavior so this is child on child not necessarily adult to child or child to something else but this is child Mm -hmm. on child yes okay yeah and when we talk when we talk about our program i'm talking about um 14 and under that okay. was the choice that we as a committee made mm-hmm. we've been meeting our committee involves um, county attorneys mental health providers um, people who have worked with sex offender treatment programs and mental and other mental health providers as well uh, law enforcement child protective services has been a part of that committee and we have decided that while the mo- the treatment models really are about 12 and under, we wanted to include 13, 14 years old because we wanted to make sure that uh, we're able to capture families in that age range where a treatment model 
may be more beneficial to the child and the family and the community than another kind of response. Well, and I would think, too, you talked earlier that it's not just age, it's developmental. You could be 14, but really be typically developmental at a 12-year-old level as Mm -hmm. well, right? Mm -hmm. So So it allows for that. Right, okay. Yeah. So when we talk about these, these behaviors, how can you tell the difference between a typical behavior and a problematic behavior? Okay. A problematic behavior would look more like repeatedly, repeatedly showing or looking at private parts, um, not recognizing boundaries with Mm -hmm. other kids, more aggressive sexual acts, use of force or threats or bribes in sexual activities, causing harm, physical or emotional, to another child, sexual activity with children of a different age. We look at what is the age difference or developmental level. And um, if a child doesn't respond after being told to stop, and that is accompanied with strong upset feelings such as anger or anxiety. Mm -hmm. How do these behaviors typically develop or what are the causalities behind it? Hmm. That's that's a great question because that's the crux of what you do (laughs) yeah it speaks to who is the whole child what is the whole child Mm -hmm. it depends on so many things one of the myths is that or the assumptions and we see this a lot parents will come in and they realize that their child acted out sexually with another child whether it was in their home or uh, a neighbor friend or and they immediately jump to oh my gosh my child must have been sexually abused Mm -hmm. so the research does not support that sexual abuse is the cause of children sexually harming another. What the research points to is that it is in fact, it is in fact uh, witness to violence and mm-hmm. physical abuse that influences the sexual, the level of sexual behavior. And I assume that could be witnessing it in your own home, but would it also include seeing it on television, movies, that sort of thing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's. Mm-hmm. That's a huge impact. I mean, how do we address that as a yeah. society? We, I think, as a society, yes, we look at the external factors, um, and we understand that the external factors can can be really dysregulating, if you will, um, cause confusion, confused emotions inside of a child. And child, if a child is developmentally not able to put words to their feelings, mm-hmm. then it comes out in behavior. Sure. And sexual behavior is one of can be one of those behaviors. How can parents or caregivers understand what is normal? That is a great question. Um, What happens, what I see often with families who realize there's a problematic sexual behavior that has come up in their family, they often, they get really alarmed. Um, Part of that is not necessarily the behavior, but it's also the history of the the caregiver, the parents, um, or whoever the caregiver is. And that we, I don't know if we do, I, I know that we do not do a good enough job in our society talking about sexual development. And we, me included, with my own kids, you know, I struggle with how sure. am I going to convey this information that I was not brought up in a way that said, yes, be open and be communicative. Yeah. So parents can often um, get really not only alarmed, but they can also respond in an exaggerated kind of way. Um, how does how does that impact a child if if you 
freak out yeah. as a parent? Does that impact the child's behavior? Does it make them feel like less than normal? How, how does that impact them? Yeah, it. Um, I know that response is so important. I like to say that the significance of the incident, the sexual behavior incident itself, is not as it's not as big as the response. Mm. The response is so, so important. And what I would say to parents is that um, we need to listen. And so how should I, re- if you ask yourself, how should I respond if I walk in on my kids and they're behaving sexually with each other? Mm-hmm. First of all, get curious. What is this? Mm-hmm. Every, fam- different families have different family cultures. So you think about what your family's values are and what are they doing? Is this a natural and healthy exploration? Is it age appropriate? Um, But mainly try to stay calm. That's super important to the child's well-being. When you get alarmed, the child gets alarmed. So would that be the first thing then is to ask, what are you doing? Very calmly, what what are you doing? Yeah. Okay. What are you doing? Do you all have questions? Mm -hmm. Let me know what's happening. Yeah. Um, but reassure- I, I'm gonna just yeah. going to say it right now. That's going to have to be hard for a parent. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Because I think the first instinct is, is to freak out, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. Well, we're all learning something here today. Yes, we are. <laughs> the other thing is to reassure your child that you care about them, that I care about you, and that's why I'm interested in what's going on here. Oh, that's perfect. The other thing is remember that, um, for parents, remember that you aren't alone. I gave the statistic earlier, and the other one is that one-third of all sexual offenses against children are committed by other youth. So, really? Yeah. That's oh, wow. a national statistic. A quarter of sexual offenses committed by youth are with family members. Youth are often youth often act out sexually with children they know and see often, such as siblings, friends, classmates, or neighbors. Wow. And this is children from all different races, genders, families, and backgrounds, socioeconomic levels. All children can have problematic sexual behaviors. Wow. I think the the awareness factor is really important, and we've seen quite a few celebrities uh, talking about this. And I know like Kesha and Oprah have been very vocal about bringing awareness to remove stigma. Um, but what you were just talking about with youth on youth is um, Vanessa Williams shared uh, that she'd been abused at a at a very young age on vacation, and I believe she said by another young person, and she was around the age of ten. And she said that she believes that that experience is what caused her to be sexually awakened at way too early of an age. And I guess my question to that is, is that a fairly typical response? Does it actually bring about early sexual awareness in general? And and does that become problematic later in life? I would say more than sexual awareness, I would say it brings about confusion. Mm-hmm. It's very confusing for a, for a child. Um, sexual experience is not the same for a child as it is for adults, mm-hmm. says the research. And um, so I would say the word is confusing. And the work of the parent, the caregivers, is to help organize that confusion. So when you were talking about kind of, you know, things to look for, resources, where would you point somebody who thinks that maybe their children are acting inappropriately or trying to kind of self-diagnose whether it's normal or not? Where would you send them? You know, one of the most useful things I have found is this booklet by Tony Cavanaugh-Johnson. It's been, it was updated in 2015, the other, and one of them was updated in 2016, so there are two of them. One is helping with children, helping children with sexual behavior problems. The other is understanding 
children's sexual behaviors. And in there, there is a chart and it has natural and healthy behaviors, concerning behaviors, and seek professional help behaviors. Wow. And it lists those. And I recommend those to parents so that we can begin to understand that two children playing doctor doesn't mean that there has been abuse or there right. is being, or abuse is being done or there's some kind of coercion being done. Um, so we want to know when and where and how to really shed this positive, natural, healthy attitude towards sexual development. And that booklet has been very helpful. So for, I'm looking at the book. She was kind enough to bring it. So if you're looking for it, I'm going to assume you can probably find it on Amazon. But you can also find it on the website, www.tcavjohn.com. And there are so many other resources as well. One of the one of the websites that uh, I use is the National Center for the Sexual Behavior of Youth. So National Center for the Sexual Behavior of Youth. The other is a good one about trauma, and that is the National Child Traumatic Stress Network, mm. NCTSN. Both of those are .org. So those are those are great resources. Thank you for sharing them. I know the work that you guys are doing um, with the Problematic Sexual Behaviors Diversion Program is is really critical, especially to the community here. Here, how how is the work that you're doing at the center changing the response that people are typically having in in this realm? First of all, the most concrete example of the change is in the language that we use, even among our committee, and then increasingly among our multidisciplinary team. And that's changing the language from alleged offender that I used mm -hmm. earlier to um, a, a child-centered child -centered language, a child with problematic sexual behavior. And just that change in language has changed our focus and what we're emphasizing. So I think that's really a good question, though, is how important is the language that we use in responding to this kind of behavior? Yeah. It's really important because the language can contribute to, when we use words like perpetrator, uh, offender, that is, that is adult language. And it's, sh it's shaming. Mm -hmm. It uh, can create guilt. Um, and I think caregivers are influenced by that too because that's their go-to response. Sure. When they get alarmed is they're thinking, oh, my child is a perpetrator and it can be very alienating for the parent and for the child so I would say with our programming that's really where we start and it's a mouthful to say child with problematic sexual behavior right. and it's worth it well sure but we have long-winded ways of saying children have autism and it's perfectly acceptable for us to do that so mm -hmm. it's just a change in direction right mm -hmm. do you find that um, some parents or caregivers or are almost afraid to seek out help because they're afraid that they will be blamed for the behavior? Oh yeah, and the shame and the, the guilt. And one of the responses that parents, that I see with parents is, what did I do wrong? Mm -hmm. I should have done something to protect my child. Then you've got the complexity too when it's two children in the same family. Mm -hmm. the oh sure. parent loves their children and it puts them in a position where they're conflicted. Sure. They want to keep both children safe. 
they have an urge to punish based on how we handle sexual behavior in our culture. Um, and so that question of, is this my fault? I'm ashamed. And that's why we don't actually have the real numbers on problematic sexual behavior, I believe, is because it's hard to make that call and say, this is what I'm noticing and this is what I'm worried about. So if nothing else from this discussion, I would hope that parents would be more empowered to call a local children's advocacy center. Sure. Well, we're going to take another quick break. When we come back, I do want to continue talking, though, about what are the actual signs, because I don't think we've really delved into that. And then we're going to take some questions from social media. Um, But just a reminder to everybody listening that um, anyone affected by sexual assault can find support. We would uh, encourage you to look at the National Sexual Assault Hotline, um, calling them at 1-800-656-HOPE. And we will be right back to continue this conversation. Remember how you made me crazy. Remember how I I'm praying for an endless summer 
back with Future of Health talking with our guest, MC Jenny. MC, tell me, um, I know parents out there, everybody listening is going, okay, my biggest question is, how do I know if this is normal or not? My six-year-old is doing this, my 15-year-old is doing this. What are age-appropriate actions that they should not worry about? that they should not worry about. I love that question because that has, yes, there's gonna be sexual behavior and there is positive, natural, and healthy sexual behavior. And I would say, for example, let's take a preschool child. So a preschool child, what's natural and healthy would be they touch or rub their own genitals when diapers are being changed. Uh, When going to sleep, when tense, excited, afraid, or just because it feels good. You walk into your room, this happened to me, I walked into my daughter's room and, you know, age appropriate and I'm thinking, yep, that's age appropriate. And I'm thinking, we wanna shed some positive light around Mm -hmm. this. So we get into an age appropriate discussion. That has to be the hardest part though, the age appropriate discussion. You know what? You just reminded me of something, discussion. Mm -hmm. Parents think, okay, it's this big discussion that we have to have. So parents get themselves all ready and they <laughs> gather data. Sit down. <laughs> what am I gonna say? How's this gonna go? I'm uncomfortable. Here's an easy remedy, and that is have 120 second conversations. Oh, smart. Small doses, it's developmentally appropriate, right? How many of us know what it's like when you say, we're gonna talk about sex now, and your child would roll their eyes. Mm-hmm. But if you do it from a young age, in little doses, it's easier for both of you. Which we do about other topics. We do that about religion. We do that about manners. We do that about every other topic in yeah, life, right? Why would we yeah. not do that around We this? don't save up for this. Maybe when my child is old enough, maybe I'll have the courage to talk about these difficult things. By the time most parents have it, I think the kids could actually give them the lecture anyway, which is pretty entertaining. Isn't that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what, what would be then sexually or age appropriate for, say, I don't know, a middle school kid or a 10-year-old? Let's take, let's take a fourth grader. Okay. Natural and healthy is asks about genitals, breasts, intercourse, babies, um, is interested in watching, peeking at people, doing bathroom functions, mm-hmm. uh, plays doctor. The child inspects another child's body, including private parts. Uh, Boys and girls are interested in having or birthing a baby. Mm -hmm. They talk about that. Um, So that would be natural and healthy. Again, it's not only the behavior that we focus on. It's the context. Are there other things going on? Is there disruption in the home? Did a family member just experience something that could be challenging and hard for this child? So it's really not solely about the behavior. Mm-hmm. It's being aware of your, whole, your child's whole life. So if I'm a parent, when is the right time for me to say, I'm not sure this is age appropriate or I'm not sure that this is quote unquote normal, I should go ask an expert. What, what advice would you give a parent who's really kind of on the fence of, I'm just really not sure if this is the right thing or not? I think that's a perfect time to reach out and ask. There are all kinds of curriculums. I was just looking at one the other day um, that's called Our Whole Lives. It's a a curriculum that uh, organizations can use. And I was reading through it and thinking, wow, this is amazing information. So I would encourage families to find out what's in your community that would help guide your parenting Mm -hmm. in order to guide your child. I think, again, it's a a 
non non question, right? You would ask your your other parents when you ask them about when is the right time to teach them to ride a bicycle? When is the right time for them to be out of diapers? Mm -hmm. This would be a, a pretty typical question, I would think. Mm -hmm. Well, for those, though, who are, are victims, I guess, who's most at risk? What are those kind of factors that, pa that parents and caregivers should be prepared for? Who's most at risk? Like I said earlier, it is a myth that it is sexual abuse that causes sexual behavior in a child later. It is uh, exposure to violence, witness to violence that can be in the home, that can be out of the home, it can be on television, mm -hmm. it can be over the internet. Um, if, is there a history of abuse or neglect? Is the living situation unsafe in any way? Is the community unsafe? Um, seeing sexual acts such as viewing pornography or witnessing others, other youth or adults doing sexual things, um, and lack of supervision in the home. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I always see cases where supervision can be challenging for a lot of families and understanding the positive impact that having open doors um, and making clear that it's important for everyone to know what's going on in the house. Um, and speaking of doors, if a child is touching themselves in a way that makes others uncomfortable, that is a sign that something is not quite right. Um, and especially if a child is asked several times, numerous times, repeatedly. Mm -hmm. um, and typically a parent can ask, you know, that's it's okay to touch yourself because it can feel good to touch ourselves. We're, our bodies are designed that way. We just do it in private. In private. And you say that in a very lighthearted, sure. accepting, non-judgmental way. So speaking of doors, mm -hmm. I'm going to ask the question I think a lot of parents are, are out there wondering, if my child walks in on us having sex, what do I say? Hmm. How do I make it not <laughs> scary? Well, find out. Um, I would say let's let's back up a little bit, okay? So let's set the uh, uh, the scenario. The best scenario would be that this is a family that really communicates about feelings already. We talk about what's going on in the family. Um, we're open. We're expressive. So you've got that all that foundation laid, and then something happens where they've they've witnessed. They've opened the door, and there you are. And Positive, natural, healthy. Those are, those are the components to focus mm -hmm. on in that situation. <laughs> that sounds really easy. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure every parent would agree with you on that, but yes, yeah. it's, the right, it's the right direction. Yeah. It's so such really an opportunity. There's so many opportunities which I think we can be taking for learning together, educating, um, hearing what the questions are, mm -hmm. and having fun with that. Yeah. Really, parents probably should just be prepared for that, right? Like, if you're going to have kids, that's just one of those things you should be prepared for. They're going to ask you about Santa Claus. They're probably going to walk in on you, right? Be prepared. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we'll take a few questions from social media now um, because this is a very important topic to people. So the first one we have is, with everything on social media nowadays, how can I control how my kids learn about sex? I would say if I were given a chance to say one word, it would be participation like participating with your child in activities, including the internet. Mm -hmm. We often see the internet as a way to sometimes keep our children busy so that we can get things done. However, 
I really think so much can be improved by really taking the time to do internet activities with our children so that they learn, they identify with when they are, when they are online, mm -hmm. they have this feeling like, oh, this is something I do with my parent, with right. my trusted right. adult. This is something we do together. So that life on the internet is not something that's um, something they go off alone and, and secretly do. Mm -hmm. So I would say to parents, yes, know as much as you can about what your kids are learning. Not in a, um, you can't do this, you shouldn't do this, not in a fear-based way, but more in an exploratory kind of way. What are you learning? What are your questions? What's mm -hmm. challenging you right now? What's confusing to you right now? Let's talk about that together. That goes back to your having 120 second conversations, yeah. always talking about it so that it's not just this one and done kind of a thing. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, let's answer this question. Um, <laughs> I'm too uncomfortable to have the conversation about sex with my child. Should I go to the doctor, my neighbors, a friend? What would you recommend to somebody who is too uncomfortable for all the conversation? All of them. <laughs> the more we all talk about uh, sexuality and development and shed positive light on that, the better. So we all need to stop the stigma, basically, is what yes, you're saying. Yes, we all need yeah. to stop the stigma. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, I think we have time for one more quick question. Um, is it true that children who have been abused will become abusers themselves when they grow up? It is not true. The research does not show that um, abused, sexually abused children will become abusers. That is a myth and that is not supported. I'm glad that we're breaking that myth. Um, we are going to take another quick break. When we come back, we will continue the conversation about the First Step Resource Center. We'll be right back. Waiting for your love My arms have been waiting for your love 
And we're back on the future of health. So MC, tell me a little bit about what you guys have learned through this pilot program. Any good learnings, insights, outcomes that we could share? One of the first learnings is the challenges of changing stigma Mm -hmm. around sexual behavior and what it means. Um, That we have learned a lot about that. And we've also learned that there's a lot of research out there that points to children receiving treatment for sexual behavior and families is is really effective. Mm-hmm. And we want to give as many families uh, the chance at getting treatment as possible. Um, so one of the outcomes of that has been we have the, we've set up a program with care coordination and we have therapists in the community that we have had trained in trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy with a problematic sexual behavior component. And so we have been referring families to these therapists. And so we're getting a, a body of knowledge and experience and training in our community. It's been really valuable. And we also, one thing we're doing is the multidisciplinary team is key in this because the agencies need to speak to each other. Mm-hmm. Obviously, everyone wants a safer community, and we are up against a, sort of a fear-based response to sexual behavior. And being able to for the team to talk to each other, to work together, to um, sort out what are the issues here, what are the obstacles. So we're really in the learning. I wouldn't say we have concrete outcomes right mm-hmm. now, but we're really in the learning phase. And what has been remarkable is when a family is struggling with sexual behavior of their children, their child or children, for them to know, for them to get beyond that place of fear and them to realize, for the family to realize that actually there are people who can talk about with this with them and can support them and help them and, and, and people who can focus on our, our family's resilience and support us and see us as a whole family, um, that has been really powerful. It's, a, it's built on connection sure. and empowerment it's, it's kind of the philosophy of you're not alone, and you can get through it. Yeah, right? yeah. And so the more, of, the more this program is being talked about and the more grounded the team gets in the work, uh, the more we're able to figure out what, is, what does this child and family really need at this point. It's not to say that some children and families won't need a more um, court related sure. approach that may be but at least we've looked at it and we have we've assessed and we're seeing the whole family well and even even if it does go to that point you're still there to support them through that process right yes yeah yes. and that matters yeah. how's the community response been to this program the community has been curious mm-hmm. um the you know the historically the system response it has been more of a criminal approach mm-hmm. and change is difficult so in terms of the professional community there is um there's some pushback and i think that's natural um and there are others who are saying yes yes we want this for example law enforcement sitting at our mdt table our multidisciplinary table wondering this isn't 
this is a seven-year-old. I don't know what to do with this, but him feeling the burden of, I should do something, but I don't know what to do. It really, it helps our team. Sure. I have to respond, but this is not the response I want to go with. Yeah. There has to be other options. Yeah. So we've seen some relief Mm -hmm. in having other options. Um, Are you at capacity? I mean, are you guys seeing that many cases that you're at a point now where you're not, you may need to expand in the future? We hope so, mm-hmm. because we know there's a lot more um, behavior going on that's concerning that people are speaking up about because, like we said, because of the stigma around it. Sure. Um, we're not at capacity. Okay. We're Our doors are open to say, where are you families? And we're here for you. And we want to work with you. Um, I recently worked with a family in our community, and really what we did was it's it's really what we're aiming for and that was to have after about a year of treatment for both children in the family we were all able to sit down together and it just experience what it feels like to have moved on and to have healed and that's what we hope for for many many families yeah that's amazing for all the families we work with. It's it's great that this program exists and that it's, it's really focused on the youth. Uh, I wonder, though, because I think it was um, music artist, uh, actor Common, who talked about how he was on set right now for a movie, and when he, well, I guess this was a little while ago, but when he was going through the script, something triggered in him, and he had a memory, and then he just had this flood of memories about when he was 9 or 10, and he was abused by a family friend. And although he said, you know, I've been able to cope with it, I really wanted to just push it back in my brain and forget all about it. What happens to those people? What what resources are the, there for people who maybe were victimized as a child and, and just forgot about it or buried it and are now realizing it? Yeah, yeah. I think children are amazing at developing, um, I call them superpowers, mm-hmm. and really their coping skills. Mm-hmm. They're not always functional. They may A coping skill may work when they're a child. For example, um, a child not remembering it you know the 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 brain doesn't process it in a way that creates a concrete memory or an explicit memory um, but the memory is implicit and that can be really helpful to a child in the moment sure um, but it doesn't last forever sure. for example in his case and what would i say to someone who's remembering something about their past and I realized that talking about this issue and listening about it can bring things up for people. I would say, yes, um, see if you can talk to someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. has to be hard. Well, for those of you who are listening, I'm, I'm, we're going to remind you that if, if this triggered anything for you or if someone you know is struggling, please reach out to the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE. Um, and MC... This, is, this has been a really important topic, and the work you do is just, it's really beautiful. I'm not going to lie. It's just, it's, it's truly amazing what you do. Is there any family or case or program or anything that really sticks out that you've, you've, you've been able to see kind of the beautiful, beautiful other side outcome that, that you'd like to share with us? Hmm. I would. I, I, well, a lot of families are com- coming to my mind right now. You can never pick and, one. <laughs> yeah, and the part of it, what's what's common to these families is a sense of 
an experience of growing closer and an experience of learning more about each other and feeling proud of each other, no matter what was going on with the child, Mm -hmm. what the behavior was at the time. Um, So I think it's that place where families come together again and they're like, you know what, we're closer than ever. And we didn't know it was possible and I was so, I was so mad and I was so, just so angry at first and so confused by this and then mad mad at my child because I just didn't understand and mad at my child but I love my child and mm-hmm. I was just it was hard and then to see a family sit down and just look at each other and say I see you mm. I see the whole you that's beautiful. and I understand more yeah that's amazing what is it that inspires you to do this work? Is it that? Is it those outcomes? You know, I think it's that there's something about taboo topics for me. <laughs> you know, um, I think sexual abuse, it so easily goes, becomes invisible, mm-hmm. goes underground. And I'm just really drawn to the experience of saying, no, no. You don't need to do this alone, mm-hmm. and we can we can do this together. And you're not alone. And let's shed some light on this, so you can be who you want to be in your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can be the you you strive to be and want to be. Well, yeah. we are most grateful for the work that you and your colleagues do. Um, thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Thank you, MC Jenny, um, and to everyone for listening and sending in your questions. More information can be found on Providence.org by searching for the First Step Resource Center. Well, thank you to MC Jenny for joining us today and to everyone for listening and sending in your questions. More information can be found on Providence.org by searching for First Step Resource Center. We look forward to a future topic with more experts from Providence St. Joseph Health. Make sure to follow us on social media at PSJH on Twitter and on Instagram and under Providence St. Joseph Health on Facebook. To learn more about our mission, programs, and services, visit future.psjhealth.org. Thank you.